Welcome to Uncancelled History. I'm Douglas Murray, and today we're going to be talking about one of the great figures of American history, the 16th President of the United States, Abraham Lincoln. And I'm delighted to be joined today by the writer Andrew Ferguson. Andrew Ferguson has served as a senior editor at the Weekly Standard. He's been a contributor to numerous publications, including The Atlantic, The New Republic, The Washington Post, and The New Yorker. Most importantly for our conversation today, he is also the author of the 2007 book, Land of Lincoln. Andrew Ferguson, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I wanted to start with this. A couple of years ago, just before the 2020 election, I was touring around the United States. And I arrived one day in the city of Portland. And the night before I got there, they, uh, a, a crowd had pulled down uh, one of the remaining statues in, in, in the city, which was the statue of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, by the time I got there, there was just an empty plinth and uh, someone had sprayed land back uh, in graffiti on the bottom of the plinth. The same year, in 2020, a statue of Lincoln was brought down by the officials in the city of Boston. There were calls to remove the same Im image of Lincoln with an emancipated slave in Washington, D.C. And uh, calls for removals of Lincoln statues um, come from a surprising array of places. Um, just last year, a, a GOP lawmaker in Missouri reacted to the removal of a 12-ton statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee uh, by suggesting that the statue of Lincoln at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington should be removed. Uh, according to State Representative Tony Lavasco, if we insist on tearing down statues of reprehensible people Let's at least be fair and balanced about it. Well, we'll come on to these attacks later, but let's start at the absolute beginning. Um, why was Lincoln a great man and worthy of admiration in your view? Well, that's a very deep, suspiciously deep question, actually. It, it's, um, it tends to open up a whole views of America and what we think about America. I used to summarize... Uh, an answer to that kind of question is loving Lincoln, appreciating Lincoln is a way of loving America and appreciating America. Uh, there's lots of reasons for that. One is he sort of embodied the American dream of a destitute childhood, uh, very difficult, hard scrabble life who kind of rose through his own, uh, his own ambition and his intelligence and his incredibly hard work to become quite a successful lawyer. And then of course, a politician, so he sort of embodies the American dream in that way, uh, in that sort of visceral way, historical way. More importantly, though, he is the great articulator of American exceptionalism. What is it about America that makes America so different? Why has America been so successful in lifting so many people out of poverty and, and offering opportunity to a wider variety of people? In, than any other country, really, in the history of civilization. And Lincoln understood why it was working this way, why the country was good, why the country had to be preserved and extended into the future. Um, no one was better at that than he was. 
Uh, what of his achievements stand out to you? Well, you know, for a long time, the great debate among historiographers and historians about Lincoln was, what was his great achievement? Was it that he saved the Union or that through the Emancipation Proclamation in 1862 and 63, he freed the slaves? Which of those two things is he supposed to be honored most for? And it sort of is, is, it confuses the question, I think. It confuses his achievements. Um, simply preserving the Union, which is what uh, is listed as his great achievement in the beautiful Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., is, uh, was a great achievement. But just so I just lay out what that achievement was. Preserving the Union, he became president uh, right before he became, was inaugurated, uh, half the southern states seceded. He became president. The rest of the southern states seceded, and we had a four-year civil war of appalling ferocity and barbarity. Um, 650,000 people dead over the course of really three and a half or four years of fighting. Um, and at the end, um, the Union came together. And... Uh, as the, the, the great historian Shelby Foote put it, the, the country was transformed, as you can see, in the sense of uh, before the war, people would generally say the United States are whatever, using the plural verb. At the end of the war, it, people said the United States is. Mm -hmm. So he, had, he brought the Union together and made it a single country in a way that a lot of people had never thought it could be. It was just a collection of states beforehand. He never believed that, but a lot of people did. So that's a, that's a tremendous achievement for which we're all in his debt. But he lived at a time of great consolidation. I mean, simply keeping a big country together through force is a great achievement. But Garibaldi did it in Italy around the same time. Bismarck did it. Mm. If that's all Lincoln did, um, we would still be grateful to him, but it wouldn't make him the world-class, world-historical figure that he is. What he wanted to do was preserve the Union, but it was a certain kind of Union that he wanted to preserve. And this is where the slavery question comes in. He wanted to preserve a country in which, as he said, the question of human slavery would be resolved by its eradication. It would be put on a footing of its ultimate extinction. And only the kind of country that he was preserving could guarantee that slavery would be done away with in the United States, in the context of the United States. And the reason for that was the United States was a country dedicated to a proposition that all men are created equal. So in preserving the Union, freeing the slaves, what he really preserved was that proposition. All men are created equal, and that can be the footing for a great country. We'll come back to both of those massive achievements later, but um, interesting. So how did Lincoln first come into your life? Oh, well, uh, <laughs> it's um, sort of a, a kind of a coincidence, really. Uh, a lot of strange things happen. I, I grew up in Illinois, which is called the land of Lincoln, um, outside of Chicago. Um, I lived uh, down the street or around about a mile away from a house that Abraham Lincoln had once spent the night in, according to local uh, legend. My father was a lawyer who worked in a law firm called Aisha Lincoln and Beale, which had been founded by uh, Lincoln's only surviving son in the uh, 1880s. 
very early on, I started reading Lincoln and reading about him and was hooked in the sense, you know, I mean, I was a kid, but I think I sensed the universality that I was just talking about, this sense of one man representing so much more and it being so deeply linked to, to the country itself. Um, so with all those Lincoln influence, I lived on Lincoln Street too, for that matter, now that I think of it. Um, so it's just sort of all kind of pointed me in that direction. One of the many things that is fascinating about your book, Land of Lincoln, is that you show that the recent attacks on Lincoln, I mean, by no means new, and uh, that, that this has been a consistent trend for, for a very long time now. I wanted to quote a bit of that. You mentioned in your book, Land of Lincoln, that uh, you give the example of the, uh, the, the f a fall off in interest in, in Lincoln, uh, and indeed perhaps in all historical figures that, again, we might think is very recent as a phenomenon, but it is, goes back a bit further. You, you give the example of um, the decline in attendance at Lincoln-related sites from about the 1960s onwards. And you give the example of the fact that places that were called Lincoln shrines became Lincoln, Lincoln sites. Um, there was a fall off of, of, of him, of, uh, somebody describes as, as the, the fall of the American Adam. And, and, and you mentioned that, that, that there's just a change in his, in his reputation that you, you say is, is something like amnesia that started to kick in from about the 60s. Tell us yes. about that. Yeah, well, part, partly it was simply a matter of a trend that's accelerated in our own day, which is teaching less history in schools. Um, and that's actually, paradoxically, for uh, Republican conservatives, that, that, that worsens uh, under President George W. Bush with the No Child Left Behind Act, which kind of squeezed out the teaching of civics and history in favor of the STEM science technology uh, curriculum. Uh, so that's part of it. Um, the other part is a kind of a sense of, you mentioned the, the a great phrase of C. Van Woodward's, the fall of the American Adam. That wasn't referring just to Lincoln, but it was a sense of a loss of innocence in the way we looked at the country. Mm. And, uh, you know, Saul Bellow had the great phrase, the wised up world. Um, mm. We were all, we all, if you're going to be kind of sophisticated and educated, you're wised up in the sense that, you know, this, this heroism stuff, we don't need heroes. Heroes aren't real. They don't really withstand any kind of scrutiny. Um, so part of the loss of interest in Lincoln is just sort of undercutting the sense that People can be great, and people can be huge and in, in loom large in the history of a country uh, to the point where we even feel his effects today, which I argue you do with Lincoln, but a really sophisticated understanding, and using that ironically, um, will tell you that that's not really how you, history works. You give a specific example of um, the, the, the story you knew of, the, of, of Lincoln witnessing a slave auction and announcing as a young man and, and saying, someday I'm going to hit that and I'm going to hit it hard. Right. And you mentioned this and uh, friends. Uh, yeah, this is when I got to college after a lifetime of being a buff and I read these children's books and a, a really beautiful illustrated children's book about Lincoln it was by this couple called the Dolayers. And um, uh, they, one of the central scenes is 
the young striving Lincoln working on a on a riverboat and he sees a slave auction and he says, I'm gonna hit that someday, I'm gonna hit it hard. And I remember meeting this very smart, sophisticated guy in college, you know, and it turned out he'd read the book when he was a little boy and he'd been a Lincoln buff as I had. And uh, and I mentioned that scene, how wonderful it was. He goes, oh yeah, you know that's well, it was a bunch of crap. <laughs> Lincoln hated black people. He, he, he didn't mind slavery at all. Come on, the historians know all about that. You can read all about that. That's not baloney. And so history at that point for me became a matter of assuming an attitude rather than actually building up knowledge. Um, my friend was wrong about all of this. I mean, that he, was, he was wrong about that specific. He, he was wrong in the sense that um, the incident itself may or may not have taken place. I mean, the Dolaires put those words into Lincoln's um, uh, mouth, uh, but Lincoln did see slavery close up. He did see a slave auction uh, when he was traveling on the river. Um, historians are not at all <laughs> convinced that he was a racist in the, in the modern sense of how we use that. Um, so that wasn't what was important, though, for me as a, as a young sophisticate. The important thing was that I had this attitude, the wised-up attitude of knowing, you know, all these guys, George Washington, Jefferson, you know, that's just... The whole founding was a con job. It was all about real estate speculation and all these kinds of deterministic views. That's what a smart person thought. But, but is a smart person of a very specific era, it's one of the interesting yes. things about that. A smart person from about the 1960s onwards in America um, encourages that fall of the American atom because it's a sort of, it's a basic thing to mm -hmm. believe in. Yeah. And as you say, the sophisticated view is yeah, he's cynical, maybe. Yeah, yeah. doubting, know-all, perhaps. Right, right. And I actually think that 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 may be passing away a little bit now. Uh, and I'm sure we'll get to this, but in the whole series of woke controversies and things that Lincoln was subjected to over the last couple of years, uh, suggests a kind of a transformation of that. I think nowadays you can believe in heroes, uh, but Lincoln can't be a hero. George Washington can't be a hero. Malcolm X maybe can be a hero. Um, so there, are the, the whole concept of heroism, which was undermined by the sort of 60s skepticism and cynicism, is now, I think, passing away with the baby boom and a new kind of less cynical, but still, I, by my lights, kind of destructive view is taking its place. What's the linger on one other of those interesting post-60s interpretations of Lincoln before we come up to the modern day, which is another example you give of, of the way in which uh, in, in recent decades there had been a, a different attempts to sort of reinterpret Lincoln. Uh, and and you, give, you give a number of examples. Um, you give the example of a polemic called Why Lincoln Matters, in which you say that uh, the author says that basically if... Uh, if Lincoln were alive today, his political views would pretty much be indistinguishable from those of the author. Um, you give the example of a, a book uh, by a journalist called Lincoln's Melancholy that tries to show that, that Lincoln was arguably suffering from something like clinical depression and most memorably in 2005, a sex researcher and gay rights activist published a book called The Intimate World of Abraham Lincoln in the hope of proving that Lincoln was actually gay. 
and and as a as a gay activist said, he's ours. And then you make this fascinating point because you say, if, um, for a century or more, generations of Americans were taught to be like Lincoln, uh, forbearing, kind, principled, resolute. Um, but in recent decades, what we've really wanted is to make Lincoln like us. Yes, right. That is a fascinating historical turnaround. Yes, yes. Well, and it's summarized perfectly in, in the, the, that phrase, he's ours. Mm. Um, and I mean, but this, this did go on through much of the 20th century precisely because Lincoln was understood to be a hero. Everybody wanted to be on his team. Uh, I mean, of course, I say everybody, but the majority of people. I, um, I, I was thinking the other day about Lincoln's religion for one reason or another. And Lincoln's religion is quite a contested subject. Um, uh, but that didn't, he was clearly an atheist when he was a young man and a skeptic and then grew into some kind of deism as he got older. But um, <laughs> that didn't stop everybody from wanting to say, there's a wonderful monograph by Cardinal Mundelein of Chicago from the 20s, I believe, in which he proves that Lincoln was a Catholic. And uh, I, I just then came across, um, the, there's a famous book by a Hindu immigrant to the United States called Autobiography of a Yogi named, his author was Paramahansa Yogananda, who, who um, in his autobiography, which is quite an interesting book, uh, proves that Abraham Lincoln was once a Himalayan yogi, and, and he had been re reincarnated. Uh, Mary Baker Eddy said that he had been a Christian, she's the founder of Christian Science. He had been a Christian scientist, even though he died before Mayor ba Mary Baker Eddy came up with the idea. He was Christian a proto-Christian scientist. Proto, yeah, mm -hmm. he had the prototype for, um, for not going to the doctor. Uh, anyway, <laughs> um, so uh, th this was a universal urge on the part of Americans who, they, they wanted, it was a way of self-validation. You know, white supremacists claimed him for a long time in the, in the 20th century. Um, some very scurrilous, repulsive people uh, claimed him as, as one of their own, as a, as a prototype for white supremacy. Um, but again, that all rests on the idea that Lincoln is a great man who you want to be close to. You need him on your side, yes. whatever argument you're making, right. whether it's a Hinduism, Christian science, all, all sorts of things. You want Lincoln He's on your side. He's a validator in some way. And what do you think, just to say on that for a second, what do you think was the, the um, what do you think that tells us about that, that era, that, that you sort of rewrite the history already, before you come to the most hostile reinterpretations, that you would reinterpret history in that light and say, you know, let's, let's use history Let's ignore the details, but make it about me. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I think it's always been the case that history, that, that people who are interested in history are interested in uh, the phrase, wonderful phrase, the usable past. That as, this is especially true in American where everything seems to have to prove itself in utilitarian terms. What use is it? What good is it to me? So why do I need to learn about the past? Why do I need to learn about this titanic figure uh, of Abraham Lincoln? What, what good is it? And self-validation is one of the reasons. Um, and that's infected a lot of the stuff that's been written about Lincoln. And, and those, those sort of modern attempts to make him 
like us, sexually more interesting, uh, um, maybe uh, mental health, all these sorts of things. These are about our age, not about... Sure, you, you, can, you can actually... I mean, it's a question of historiography, which is the study of history is history. You can make a very interesting um, narrative about the history of the United States simply by tracing, which, which I do a little bit in that book, simply by tracing the way people have thought about Lincoln. And you can... Um, you can watch the country develop as it develops ideas about Lincoln. Mm. Now, I, I think a lot of people uh, in the United States and elsewhere would be rather surprised to find that Lincoln has been a subject of attack, that, that his reputation had seemed, let's say, at least secure, mm. seems to have been lauded. Most people would have regarded him until very recently as being an an unassailable figure, like yes. some others that we're talking about in this series, like Churchill, say. I think a lot of people would be surprised that he's actually been subjected over some years to a sort of process of pulling down. Yes. Well, you know, you have to remember that um, for a large plurality of the country, not a majority, uh, but Southern sympathizers, which have continued to exist from 1861 onward, uh, have always uh, despised Lincoln, even despite the efforts of some Southerners, white supremacists, to claim him as one of their own. Um, that's a little too perverse for my taste. But um, but they've remained hostile to him on ideological grounds. This is especially a phenomenon of the old right, as we call it here, the paleoconservatives, who saw in Lincoln uh, this kind of a grotesque exertion of executive power. Of course, he was a wartime president. He did all kinds of things that no president would do in peacetime, mm. but they also claimed that he was the father of big government. Uh, he instituted the first income tax. Um, he did a lot of extra constitutional things. He canceled the writ of habeas corpus, which, of course, is the, one of the foundation stones of, of a free government. He spent all kinds of money that weren't, wasn't authorized by Congress and so on. And so he has, for those people, become kind of a symbol of overweening government, of the kind of government that won't leave you alone, hyper-regulatory, ex endlessly expansive. Is that really why they dislike him? Well, I think you could make the case that that's kind of a dodge right. in the sense that what it, <laughs> they really don't like his racial... Uh, right. Policies. I mean, I think. I mean, it's, stra it's strange to talk about a, f a figure who died a, more than fifty years ago and dislike him because of big government. Oh yeah, but it's it, it's quite a serious uh, thing. I mean, it's a, it's a small group of people, but they're libertarians and libertarian organizations who are dedicated to the proposition, as it were, uh, that that Lincoln uh, inaugurated big government and made people turn to government first rather than to their own devices. And I think that's, a, again, I think that's a totally perverse um, reading of what Lincoln did. I remember a, I was at an anti-Lincoln conference, which was mostly right-wingers. Um, when was it? left-wingers. This was about 15 years ago, 10 years ago. And there was a book, lots of books there. They also had a T-shirt, I'll never forget it, said, um, you think our problems started in the 60s, you're right, the 1860s. And that sort of summarizes the old right view of... Um, and, and is there no concession in that argument for the fact that the Civil War was going on? Usually not, no. 
I, I mean, it's sort of stunning that. No, you try and explain that these are wartime powers. And by the time, you know, Lincoln, of course, was killed at the end of the war. But by 1870, 1872, the income tax had been rolled back. A lot of the, you know, of course, habeas corpus was reinstated. There was, um, there were all kinds of the, the, the excesses of big government that, that were required in war actions were rolled back. And essentially the government, even under Lincoln, wasn't much bigger than the government under Calvin Coolidge, say, you know, right. 60, 70 years later. And just, just spread out a little as well that, that the, the, the residue of that Southern critique of, of Lincoln that's still there. Um, how much of it still exists? Well, now I think, well, those guys have been pretty well beaten down over the last 15 years, especially. Um, and you don't, they, they don't get much airtime. However, you can take the essentials of their critique about the kind of man Lincoln was and see all of it in the left-wing attacks from the 1960s on Lincoln, that Lincoln was, in fact, a racist, he was a white supremacist, um, hated black people, uh, was totally fine with slavery, had never had an intention of doing away with slavery. Um, th those are the standard critiques that you would get on the left of, of uh, Lincoln and, and the seminal work there is a book by a man named Lerone Bennett, who is the editor of Ebony Magazine, a very popular magazine of the 60s and 70s and 80s for with the black audience. And he kind of used Ebony as a pulpit to disabuse his audience of any thought that Abraham Lincoln was Father Abraham or, or actually a, uh, a great man who had the interests of black people at heart. So, so the same the same critique was coming from, from left and right yeah. from left and right about yeah. Abraham Lincoln yeah. and 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 the, the the southern right said this first obviously but then it gets picked up by the left in almost yeah. exactly the same terms right W E B Du Bois uh, despised Lincoln and his he was a, he was a great um, civil rights writer and mm. and thinker of the early twentieth century. Um, kind of a genius, actually, uh, but he bequeathed to the left this view of Lincoln as kind of a um, wily a politician before all else, um, completely insincere in just about everything he said, always, always manipulating, and especially with a special hostility for black people. And, th and that's become kind of a legacy of Du Bois and others. It seems always that these critiques of Lincoln tell us more about the communities making the, the groups making the claims than they do about Lincoln. Yeah, yeah. I actually talked to Lerone Bennett. Uh, he died about five or six years ago, I think, um, the man who was the editor of Ebony, um, about it and, and pointed out, you know, I, I've been hanging out with these neo-Confederates, <laughs> and, and i got to say that, that what you're saying about Lincoln is they, they'd be like, yeah. And he was really kind of offended and taken back by that. It hadn't occurred to him, even though he was a very well-read man and who had thought about this quite a bit. Um, he was kind of surprised that, that, that there was this Venn diagram overlap in the interpretation of Lincoln between white supremacists and, and the left-wing critique. Mm. 
all historical figures are complex. Um, and arguably we live in an age where we don't like complexity. <laughs> you've got to be a goodie or a baddie. You've got to be a Nazi or an anti-Nazi. It's, it's, it's always absolutely black and white. One of the fascinating things about Lincoln is, is that he was a very complex figure in all sorts of ways, in his personal life, in his, in his political life. I mean, he was extraordinarily deep and complex man. Is that one of the reasons why we struggle with him now? Well, you're quite right about um, complexity. We don't even like complexity in each other, much, yeah. much less in our historical personages. Um, I would answer that this way. Um, Lincoln's personal complexity and his ideological sort of evolution, which I think can be overstated, but he did, he did change his views over time in certain respects, um, accounts for this huge variety of interpretations of him. Um, so you can, out of the personal record, you know, there were, when, once Lincoln died, everybody who knew him as a younger man was interviewed and there, the notes of interviews like that still survived. Um, so you've got reams and reams of anecdotal material. And from that, you can pluck out, and I, I, I kind of used to do this as sport, is you could, you could take the same anecdote, cut it in half. The first part of the anecdote would be, oh, you know, gentle old Abe, you know, loving everyone and putting the kids on his lap and all that sort of stuff. In the bottom half of the anecdote, you'd say, well, he's obviously very stern and forbidding and cold. <laughs> and um, so this is, there, there's endless material, and you can generally find uh, support for multifaceted Lincolns. Um, Lincoln's of every kind, especially when it comes to his personality. Um, so this has been a source of confusion to a lot of people. I mean, my, my, my view of it has been a lot of this is simply unknowable. You can't know, you can't know somebody who's, um, been dead for 160 years. You probably couldn't know him very well at the time. He was is one of his uh, best, closest friends said he was the most shut-mouthed man I ever met. Um, he just simply did not open up about himself. Um, and because of all that, um, people diving deeper and deeper into the historical record start to think about him less and less in the sense that you begin to think he's unknowable. Um, this, of course, doesn't start... Stop historians from, you know, writing books about his marriage or, mm. I mean, hell, you know, you can't understand anybody's marriage. Your best friends, right. you don't understand his people marriage. People don't understand their own. Yeah, people yeah. don't know. Exactly. And so here we are writing deep explications of how Mary, his wife, and Abraham got along together. My sense of it is those are endlessly fascinating questions, and the material is there to argue about it really until the end of the universe. We shouldn't take that complexity at, and use it to obscure the central truth about Lincoln's life and Lincoln's contribution, which, as I said before, was he saved a particular kind of union. Mm -hmm. And 
that is that we are all the inheritors of today, and uh, we owe him an endless debt for that. To come on to the other that other achievement, you mentioned the the emancipation and the slaves. This this seems also to have undergone a very interesting transformation in recent years. Once viewed as an unadulterated good by anybody who is anti-slavery, um, now there seems to be a modern critique which is that he may have emancipated the slaves, but he didn't have exactly the views that we now have about racial issues. Right. What is going on there? Well, again, a lot of that is, is rooted in a special reading of the historical record. Um, Lincoln was a man of his time in many respects, um, and you can find in, in the record uh, lots of disparaging things um, about black people. Um, you can also find lots and lots of incidents and anecdotes and um, things that he's written that are quite uh, the opposite of that. Um, so, again, to go back to Lerone Bennett, uh, one of Lerone Bennett's great aha moments when he was a young man uh, was when he discovered that the emancipation did not free all of the slaves. What Lincoln did, Lincoln thought that even with his war powers, the only power that he had as president to free slaves was within the context of the rebellion and the war. So he limited the Emancipation Proclamation, which emancipated, declared slaves to be forever free in those areas that were then at war with the United States. He didn't think that he could release them from Delaware, for example, which was a loyal Union uh, uh, state and which had I don't know, 400 to 500 slaves still there. He didn't think he could do it for Maryland, which was a slave state. So, but that's part of Lincoln's constitutionalism. Lincoln really did try, contrary to what the old right critiques are saying, he really did try and be a law-abiding president at all times and keep within what he thought were the parameters of the Constitution. So when it comes to trying uh, to appraise his attitudes towards slavery, again, the, the record is complicated and contradictory, uh, and we are left with the fact the very positive fact, I would say, that without the actions that Lincoln took, slavery would have continued to exist for decades and decades in the United States. And untold suffering was averted because of his actions. It would have gone on for at least as long as Brazil had slavery in right. the 1880s and perhaps longer. Right. And actually, there, again, the complexities pile up because Lincoln did at one point propose in Delaware a, uh, as kind of a test case um, and a, uh, a program to buy back the slaves from the slave uh, holders. Uh, and um, the federal government would do that and it would take place over a period of time and wouldn't have come to an end until 1893. So people will take this and say, Lincoln wanted slavery to continue till 1893. Well, it's not quite that way. That's not quite what he was about. It was trying to figure out a way, a legal way, a constitutional way to eradicate slavery, which he said the Constitution did not give him the power to do, except as a war, war act. Uh, one of the extraordinary things about Lincoln, of course, is, is, is the way in which I mean, we have some of the private records, you say the diaries of, of, of accounts, of first-hand accounts, and, 
there's an argument over the authenticity of some of that. But, but we do have on the record, of course, the extraordinary way in which Lincoln was willing to argue out his case in public, thinking particularly of the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Yes. And I mean, these are extraordinary documents, it seems to me, a, a demonstration of, of, of somebody traveling the country making the case. Um, I don't know how well known the Lincoln-Douglas debates are now outside of academia. This room? <laughs> this room, I don't know. I mean, explain what they were and, and, and well, why they mattered. Lincoln uh, had been very political as a young man, uh, kind of gave up on politics after he served one term in Congress in Washington, D.C., um, and became a very successful lawyer, a corporate lawyer, in fact. And uh, then uh, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, uh, which was sort of a complicated uh, piece of legislation that in Lincoln's eyes was going to make the spread of slavery permanent in the United States, which he thought into the territories, which were then becoming states, which he thought would essentially make the entire country a slave country, that this would, this would confirm slavery as a positive good, mm. and uh, which ran against every belief he had about slavery and, and human nature, actually. So he re-entered politics. And by 1858, was running for the Senate against the author of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, a man named Stephen A. Douglas. And uh, they ran throughout Illinois, which is both of their home state, and did a series of debates that actually uh, are some of the most remarkable documents in American history. They were exhausting. They would speak... Um, Lincoln would speak for an hour, or the first speaker would speak for an hour and a half. There was a rebuttal mm. of, I think, an hour, and then I, then a 45-minute Each rebuttal. event anyway, took about four, four or hours. five hours. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm trying to remember the space. Anyway, um, then Lincoln himself uh, worked very hard on the transcripts of these things that were then published in newspapers, and he tried to make a definitive transcript of what the debates were, and there are still the notebooks where he cut out transcripts from newspapers and made the corrections in them um, when, when the transcribers had gotten it wrong. He wanted this to be a definitive statement of uh, his views and a definitive statement of the opposing views so that people could see them side be by Because side. what he wanted to make sure everyone got right about his views was... Was his, his general belief was... The Constitution did not forbid slavery. The founders put, uh, designed the Constitution so that slavery would die eventually. They didn't feel that they had the power to go in and uh, take what they was called property, even though we know you, you can't own another human being. Um, but they did, as, as Lincoln said, put it on a footing that would guarantee its ultimate extinction. The politics of the 1840s and 50s were doing away with that. And now slavery was beginning to see not as a necessary evil that was deeply entrenched in this culture and that had to be extirpated if the country was to become what it was intended to be, but started to see it as a positive good. And you can see that in some of Stephen A. Douglas's, his opponent's remarks. And th that to Lincoln was 
a betrayal of the founders, a betrayal of the foundation of the country, most of all a betrayal of the proposition that all men are created equal, that the country was meant to guarantee. Whilst we're on the Lincoln-Douglas debates, by the way, and I really do urge anyone um, watching that the, they are extraordinary debates to read today. I mean, there are portions of those debates, Lincoln, that just still burn off the page. Yes, absolutely. Um, but there's something we should linger over for a second, which is, I mean, he was obviously one of the most exceptional orators, perhaps of all time. Mm. Um, among much else, he gave us the Gettysburg Address. We should, we should linger on that for a moment. Yes, yes. 273 words uh, in which he pretty much uh, summarizes the nature of war, uh, the nature of human beings, the nature of the country and the United States' relationship to the war, to sacrifice, and to its ultimate destination, which is to be the country of dedicated to the proposition. Um, it's a, an astonishingly compressed piece of writing, uh, and I sometimes think Lincoln got more his 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 important writing got more and more compressed as he went along. And I sometimes think that he wanted this to be so short because he wanted it to be memorizable. And he, he wanted people to be able, school children, to learn to recite it by heart, which of course they did for generations up and through the Second World War. You, you really couldn't get out of an American grade school without having um, memorized or tried to memorize the Gettysburg Address um, because he thought it was that important. He, he thought it was that definitive a statement. And, and just, just uh, assuming that there might be some people listening who don't know the context of the address. Yes. Uh, well, the great high watermark of the Confederacy was the Battle of Gettysburg in July of 1863 in Pennsylvania. Uh, it was a unbearably savage fighting, um, incredible human waste. And uh, then the um, cemetery at Gettysburg was to be dedicated five months later, and Lincoln was asked as president, sort of ex officio, to come and help dedicate the, uh, the cemetery. And he was not the main speaker of the day. There was a, a big blowhard named Edward Everett, uh, who was a famous orator and would travel the world giving speeches, as people did in those days. And uh, so he spoke for, I think, two and a half hours. <laughs> and then... And nobody quotes that. No, no, and I've tried to read it, and it's so boring. I just, like, um, and then Lincoln got up, and um, the photographers were trying to get it so they could get a picture of him delivering the speech. And by the time they got the, the camera right... Lincoln was done. And sort of like, what, what the? I thought he was giving a speech. He, he'd sat down. And um, it was, some people criticized it right away. But I think if you go back and you look at most of the receptions were very good. And as time went on and people saw as the war went on, it, this is the definitive explanation of what the war was was about. The, the people knew from pretty much straight after the speech that this was something that enshrined 
the ideal of America. Yes, a lot, a lot of people did. A lot of people didn't. I mean, a lot of people thought it was insulting that he spoke so briefly. And uh, in fact, um, he did what he did on purpose, as I say. I mean, it was, he knew how to be effective in communication. He was, he was his greatest PR man himself. He, he was very, very savvy about how to make a public impression and make an enduring public impression on people. He was probably the most photographed man of his time. He never turned down a chance to have his photograph made. And he would sit for sculptures and um, all kinds of sort of annoying things. He would put himself through simply to get his image out there because he was quite, quite conscious that he was representing something. And it was very important for the union cause that there be a leader um, like him. I, I think a lot of people would still be amazed that the fact that, it, that, that, that the Gettysburg Address probably gives us more quotable lines than anything apart from maybe bits of Shakespeare. Yeah, Shakespeare and the, the Bible. The Bible, maybe one, two of Winston Churchill's speeches. Yes. But otherwise, Gettysburg is is the pinnacle of art. Yes. And it's sort of, um, again, you know, it's important about the Bible. Lincoln was steeped in the King James translation yeah. of the Bible, which, as we know, is is alternately uh, gloriously eloquent, but also incredibly pithy. Yes. And uh, reduces very complicated things to their essence. And, and in that sense, I mean... The, the Gettysburg Address bears um, comparison to the best of uh, Shakespeare and uh, the Bible. He was also very well read in Shakespeare, too. The, um, about the extent, we should just link on that for a second, the extent to which he was also self-educated. Uh, Almost completely self-educated. He, he, would, he would do um, amazing feats that we today would think of as amazing feats when he, uh, of self-education. When he became a lawyer, um, he decided he needed training in logic, so he went through all the books of Euclid himself uh, without guidance. And, and it did. You could see. You can see it shape his legal thinking, his mind. Um, Shakespeare and the Bible taught him expression. Uh, Euclid taught him logic. And his, because his formal education was... I think about a year and a half. A year and a half, yeah. And, it, you know, from itinerant uh, teachers roaming the countryside in southern Indiana and uh, Kentucky. I mean, this, this comes back to one of these reasons why he, he used to be, at least, regarded as being such an American hero. And he came from absolute poverty, as we would yes. regard it now. Absolute yeah. poverty, not... Comparative poverty, but um... his mother died when he was very young. Then uh, it was it was the life that that Anglo-Saxon flood that came in uh, the first wave and came in through Virginia, Southern Ohio, into Kentucky. It was the life that those people led. It was the hard scrabble life. There was a lot of death, um, a lot of sickness, a lot of disease, um, and you just had to claw your way out of it. And, um, and he, he did not want that life for himself anymore. He didn't want it for his kids, and he just clawed his way out. 
And, um, and of course, his, his own children, it's a terrible story. Part, part of the awful, um, you know, he's often called the man of sorrows uh, because he had such a difficult childhood. And then uh, his first or his second son uh, died when he was three in the 1850s. Then they went up to the White House where his third and favorite son died uh, in what's now called the Lincoln Bedroom. And uh, his, his one thing we do know is that his wife um, had a series of breakdowns as a result of that. Um, it's, you know, life was hard. Life was hard then. It's, 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 reading Lincoln's biography is an astonishing reminder of that. I mean, we are talking about a, a totally different era mm -hmm. uh, in terms of mortality, of basic access to medicines, of basic understanding of... Uh, he essentially Jesus. grew up in the Bronze Age. I mean, yeah. uh, Southern Indiana and Northern Kentucky were very, very backward. Everything was hard. One of the things I find so interesting about the the pulling apart of Lincoln in recent years, as with a number of other historical figures, is um, this this tendency that our own era seems to have to ignore massive achievement, but zoom in on on small failings, or you might even say significant failings. Lincoln seems to be a particular sufferer of this modern habit. Mm -hmm. uh, why do you think that is? I mean, well, it's it's a testament to his largeness, and um, it's discrediting. You know, I said loving Lincoln was a way of loving America. Discrediting Lincoln is a way of discrediting America. I mean, if it if if the American dream, as we've come to call it, of a hard scrabble life, a young man making something of himself, rising to greatness. Um, if that's kind of a a fantasy, if that's not really true, um, then it undercuts the whole view that Americans have of their country. Um, so, and again, because the record of Lincoln is in many respects so deep in terms of anecdotes and a, a kind of a paper trail and the things, uh, a long history of public life, um, you can isolate things and pick them out as, uh, you know, for example, his, as I mentioned earlier, his favor of, uh, he was in favor of colonization for many years, which was the idea that there would be some kind of emancipation for enslaved people in the United States. And then they would on the government, uh, behest, uh, take into Costa Rica or Belize or various other places that were thought of. It was, it was a cockamamie idea. But it was sort of a way station for people who were anti-slavery but couldn't bring themselves to be for full emancipation. So the idea was you had this halfway measure, which is you would, the, the, the enslaved people would be emancipated and then they'd be got rid of, pushed off stage. And Lincoln was, uh, was in favor of that for a long time. Uh, but, in, you know, essentially that was a way for him to accommodate the deep, personal revulsion he felt towards the idea of owning human beings. Mm. But uh, history is littered with ideas that seem, as you say, mainly at the time. Yes, right. Um, 
I'm Theodore Herzl, founder of Zionism, looked at Tasmania, was it not Tasmania, um, Tanzania. Tanzania, yeah. As being a possible homeland of the Jewish people. Right, right, um, right. That's, it's then it's back to the drawing board, you know, <laughs> after that. But um, it, it's uh, the tendency to isolate these things sometimes uh, betrays bad faith. Mm. And I think that there's a lot of uh, bad faith taking place, especially in, in bringing down the founders in Lincoln. Um, of course, for a long period, the end of Lincoln's life was a massive part of the legend of, of Lincoln. You mean with the assassination? The assassination. That this, right. this was also something that I mean, it made him not just the hero, but a, a, perhaps also a martyr of America. He was shot on Good Friday, uh, and uh, that was not lost on people. And by Easter Sunday, when he was dead, uh, a lot of preachers got up on the pulpit and were not shy about trying to draw uh, the parallels between the martyrdom of Jesus Christ on Friday and then the resurrection. I don't think people thought that Lincoln was going to rise from the dead. Um, but the sense of martyrdom and ultimate sacrifice was uh, began then in association with Lincoln and really continued for a century. And is justified in some way? He, well, it's actually literally true that he was a martyr for, uh, for the cause in that um, the last speech he gave uh, was an informal talk after the war was formally ended. Uh, he lived four days after the formal surrender of the Confederacy. I believe it's four days. Anyway, in a celebration, he gave an impromptu talk from the second floor of the White House uh, to a bunch of a crowd that had assembled and, and in which he broached the idea, something he hadn't before, was black suffrage, that in Louisiana, which was then forming a new government, the first of the uh, Confederacy to form a new government, that, that black men should be considered for the vote, for the franchise. And in the audience um, was John Wilkes Booth, who is the man who killed him. And Booth said, well, that tears it. I'm, I'm going to put him through. And then shot him two or three nights later. Because to Booth, the ultimate offense would be to actually enfranchise black people. And it was clear that this is where Lincoln was going and where he may have been going all along, I think. Always with a political career that ends so violently, so suddenly, there remain these what-if questions. Just indulge in that for a second. I try not to do that because it all ended so badly. Mm. <laughs> you know, I mean, the war was such a terrible thing. Uh, the, the, the potential for reconstruction was so great. And in many ways, was kind of going well uh, in, the, in the aftermath of Lincoln's um, death. It's an endless debate. Would Lincoln have been able, through his enormous political gifts and his enormous, by that time, enormous moral authority, could he have been able to see Reconstruction, which was the process of bringing the formerly enslaved into normal political and social life in the South and in the North. Could he have made that succeed? 
Um, we don't know. Maybe. Uh, it, what we do know is that it uh, lasted uh, a perilously, heartbreakingly short time. It came, it, it ended in spasms of violence and the um, invention of the KKK and massive lynching and simply because of failure of nerve on the part of the North to follow through on Reconstruction. With Lincoln, I think it would have been harder for that failure of nerve to, to happen. What do you think, as we start to draw to a close, what do you think of this um, apparent tendency that's been going on in our age that, uh, short, as we said before, if every age sort of looks at Lincoln and basically tells you more about itself than it does about Lincoln. Um, our age seems to have caught Lincoln up among a set of other historical figures and becoming capable, really, of telling the difference. I quoted uh, a GOP figure at the beginning as a rather surprising example of that, but, but uh, perhaps there's also been this more prominent movement on the political left that, that, that puts together Lee, General Lee, with Abraham Lincoln, puts Confederates with Unionists, puts people who were against the emancipation of slaves in exactly the same basket as people who mm -hmm. fought for the emancipation of slaves. Um, how does this happen and how do we untangle it? <laughs> well, there's a couple of things going on. One is uh, ignorance. People simply don't know uh, th their history at all. Um, there are constant attempts to correct this. You know, I mean, Alan Gelzo, one of the greatest living American historians, just has a book out about Robert E. Lee right now in which he tries to deal with Lee in all the kind of complexity that we're talking about. Um, and actually, I think Gelzo is sort of an agnostic in terms of tearing down Lee's statues. Um, uh, but um, if you don't know anything, anything's possible. So, if, you know, you can make a moral judgment that Robert E. Lee and Abraham Lincoln are essentially the same. Uh, they're old guys. They didn't like black people. They didn't have our attitudes towards distribution of income or racism or sexism. Um, so they're just sort of like... Um, Diana Schaub, who's a great, also a, a great political uh, scientist uh, and has written beautifully about Lincoln, has said that she, she gets her kids come into college and they have been trained in sort of woke thought that the whole, the founding fathers were the con job, it was a real estate trick or whatever. Um, they were all self-interested. They, you know, were philosophically silly and corrupt. And she says, you can't replace one program of propaganda with another. Mm. Bring them back to the text. Mm. Make them read Lincoln. Read his words. See the development of his thinking. Absorb that eloquence and the clarity of thought and the moral depth. And you don't really have to propagandize anybody. They come along. They see what's there. Mm. And it's, it's just curing that ignorance um, with the simple evidence that's there of Lincoln's own words that is um, what's needed now, I think. Where would you suggest people start? Well, I always said this uh, when I used to give talks about Lincoln a lot. It, when I was reporting on Lincoln people, um, and I would hear people from the left and the right say how terrible he was, 
I had exactly this experience. And I would go home, and there are several volumes of uh, editions of Lincoln's works, some one volume, uh, nice big fat ones, and there's an eight volume of all of his collected works, writings. And I just sit down of an evening and, and start leafing through. And he was one of the great literary artists, I think, in the English language. And if you care about that, you'll get to him. If you care about political philosophy, you'll get to him. If you care about history and um, what life was like at another time, you'll get to him that way. It's all there. And so I would, there are wonderful biographies of Lincoln, in fact, very artistically wrought biographies of Lincoln, but I would always want people to go back to the source and to Lincoln's own words, which are tremendously accessible and exciting. And to focus on those great achievements, the two in particular we've mentioned today. Yes, yes. You know, there, there's a, uh, a great book by the philosopher J.W. Uh, Austin, How to Do Things with Words, uh, meaning that words can be acts. Words can do things, can make things happen. A marriage ceremony, for example. Lincoln is the perfect example of a man whose achievements are so bound up with his words that what he did is actually there on the page. And um, it's, a, it's a tremendously exciting adventure to go on. And everybody who lives in America today lives in the wake of what he also accomplished. So far. <laughs> Andrew Ferguson, thank you. Wonderful to be here.